Welcome to Reasoning Through the Bible. My name's Glenn, and this is Steve. Today we're starting the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And a little bit about our ministry before we just jump in. If you're listening to our verse-by-verse Bible studies, this is the main thrust of what we do. We also do some topical studies. We do some Q&A periodically. We spend the majority of our time just starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and going through the Word of God. As we go along, we explain some text and explain some questions, introduce some theology and some answers to critics and people like that. We would encourage you to look at our website reasoningthroughthebible.com. And on there, you'll find that we have resources. We have all of our lessons. We have lesson plans that people in churches can follow along with. So if you're a pastor or church leader and need teaching materials, we offer that free of charge off of our website. They correspond to what we're teaching here in these podcasts. So for teacher training materials, you can listen to our podcast and you can also follow along with the lesson plans and teach a pretty good Bible lesson in your small group or your church. Again, you can find that on our website, reasoningthroughthebible.com. And if you'd like to help us a little bit financially or in prayer support, you can find out how to do that as well. So today, if you have your copy of the Word of God, open it to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. A little bit of overview, I guess, before we really get into the chapter by chapter and verse by verse. God had told Israel in the Old Testament that if they obeyed the law of Moses, then he would bless them and keep them in the land and give them fruitfulness. But if they disobeyed, then he would curse them and end up with his judgment and wrath falling upon them. Most of the Old Testament had Israel disobeying God. There was a long series of kings. If you look in the book of Kings and and Chronicles, you'll find a series of kings, most of which were bad, a few of which were good. And during the times when the good kings were there, God would increase his blessings. In the times with the evil kings, he would increase the cursings and allow the enemy to come in. So by the end of 2 Kings and the end of the book of Jeremiah, we see how God had lost his patience with Israel, and he allowed Assyria and Babylon to come in and take people captive for 70 years. Where we are here in the book of Nehemiah is towards the end of that 70-year period, and how the people are then going back to the land of Israel. Steve, that's sort of a setup. What are some of the other things we can learn about this period of Israel's history? Well, we have a few graphics here that we're going to show, and and then we'll describe it for our listening audience. The first graphic that we have here is a depiction of the divided kingdom. And part of our purpose when we go through all of these books, Glenn, is to show that it's one cohesive story. That's why we're going through some of these graphics. As we go through in some of the earlier books of Chronicles and Kings, we see that Israel ends up dividing into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, as is depicted here, Israel is made up of 10 of the tribes. And then the southern kingdom is made up of two tribes, uh, and it's called Judah. That's what this first graphic shows. If we go to the next graphic, this is showing the time period that we're in here now. We see the 70 years of captivity. You just mentioned that it's at the end of that 70 years. We have three different eras. The temple is being rebuilt. The people are 
reformed, and then the wall is rebuilt. The temple being rebuilt is done by somebody by the name of Zerubbabel. And then in the book of Ezra, we see that the people are reformed. And then Nehemiah, what we're going to be talking about, is describing the walls of Jerusalem themselves being rebuilt. And then we have that 400 years between the Old and the New Testament that is referred. When you say the people were reformed under Ezra, you, you, you mean the people returned to the land there. Right. They have a new spirit. It's the remnant ones that come back and they are there to rebuild the temple. And Ezra is describing that time of when they're rebuilding the temple, period. And if I remember correct, there was more than one time when they started to rebuild the temple, correct? Correct. It was started during the period of Zerubbabel, and then it was interrupted, and then it was restarted again during the time of Ezra. And we find that explanation in the book of Ezra. Right. And you'll see that 57-year gap there that's showing on the graphic between the temple starting to be rebuilt and then with Ezra. And then the next graphic that we have showing the statue coming out of Daniel, we see the head of gold, the arms of silver and the thighs and the abdomen of bronze and the feet of iron that describe the different kingdoms that come along. So you have the Babylonian the, the Medo-Persian, then the Greek and the Roman. The northern kingdom of Israel that we showed a while ago, it had been taken over by the Assyrians back in the 722, I think it was. And then in 586 BC, Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and took the southern kingdom. And Daniel was part of that captivity of the southern kingdom that was taken back. We're just showing this to, again, depict that Scripture itself is one cohesive story that all fits together. So in this graphic, the, the statue there and the various four or five kingdoms there comes out of some very clear prophecies in the book of Daniel. And they're, they're so accurate that the secular history very vigorously supports these things. And, and what happened? Daniel predicted these things and they came about in, over a period of years in secular history. And then the last graphic that we have goes into just a little bit more detail. Uh, the people on the video can pause it and look at it. But it just has the different time frames that we've talked about. The first one there with, again, 722 B.C. when Assyria takes Israel into captivity. And then 586 B.C. when Babylon takes Judah into captivity, the southern tribe. And then you'll see here the different prophets that are named in Scripture and what time frame that they are. Some of them are during the 70 years of captivity. Some are at the very end. And then at the very bottom there in 444 B.C., we see Nehemiah returns. That's the time frame that we're going to be talking about dealing with the book of Nehemiah. So from a big picture, just to make sure everybody has this in their minds, there's the period where the king started, and there was a long series of kings in Israel. Towards the end of those kings, Assyria and Babylon came and conquered the land of Israel and took the people captive for a period of 70 years. The reason for this was that Israel had disobeyed. They had disobeyed the law of Moses. And specifically, one of the laws of Moses was that the people of Israel were supposed to let the land rest. 
Every seventh year, they were supposed to not cultivate the land. They were supposed to let the crops lay fallow. That would help the soil get regenerated and not get depleted. Well, Israel didn't do that, and they didn't take the Sabbath years. And after 490 of them, God said, okay, the land's going to get its rest. The 70 years was specifically designed by God to let the land rest because Israel had disobeyed and not following the Sabbath years in the land rest. The other reason was because Israel had been so grossly immersed in idol worship that a series of prophets had come and told Israel, you need to stop this. And they they wouldn't. They just kept on worshiping idols and got further and further away from the true God, Yahweh. And we see that description in Jeremiah as to why they were taken off. In the beginning of Daniel, that's how Daniel starts out in the beginning chapters. It says, while he was reading Jeremiah, he comes to the realization that, hey, this 70 years captivity is almost over with. So once again, all of these books fit together in their one cohesive story. Yes, one one cohesive story. So in the end of Second Kings and the end of Jeremiah, we see Babylon coming in and taking over Israel, and they go into this 70-year period. By the time we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, the Babylonians had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians, as we showed in that graphic a few minutes ago. So the Medes and the Persians had taken over the country of Babylon and had absorbed it, really. All this is confirmed in in secular history. People returned from captivity in, in three main groups. In approximately 536 BC, some came back and started to rebuild the temple. And they got the altar and the foundation built and then were forced to stop because of some criticisms from the Gentiles. A couple of generations later, Under a new king in about 458 BC, Ezra came back and restarted the rebuilding of the temple. And then about 14 years after Ezra, 444 BC, Nehemiah, which is the book we're studying now, came back and starts to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city. And most of the book of Nehemiah, there had been some Jews already there that had come back from captivity, but they were in disarray. And one of the reasons they were in disarray was because they had no defenses. The walls were down and the gates were burned, as we're going to see in chapter one of Nehemiah. Yeah. And in Daniel, Daniel describes that there's going to be a decree that's going to come from one of the kings that's going to say you can go back to Jerusalem. That actually starts off a time period called the 70 weeks of of Daniel. But I want to ask a question, Glenn, at this juncture. So God tells Daniel, hey, there's going to be this decree that's going to allow the people to come back from captivity, and he's going to bring them back. So who is it that's bringing the people back from captivity? Well, the primary cause of bringing them back is the Lord God. He's the one that's moving all the chess pieces around on the chessboard. Why is he bringing them back? You just got through describing they disobeyed, they were idol worshipers. They hadn't obeyed when letting the land lay fallow every seventh year. So he's taking them off into captivity. Why is he bringing them back? This is a very good question. There's two primary covenants in the Old Testament. There's the covenant with Moses, and we've already alluded to that one. And that is a conditional covenant. And if you look at chapters 29 and 30, 31 of 
Deuteronomy, you'll find some conditions. God says, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. So that covenant with Moses, the law, was based on obedience. There was another prior covenant, one with Abraham. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 15 and following, you'll see the Abrahamic covenant was very different. It was a unilateral covenant made by God. And there's a series of God saying, I will do these things. And when it came time to make the covenant, uh, Abraham split the animals. God puts Abraham to sleep. Only God walks through the animals to make the legal covenant. Many times in the Old Testament, God has said, I will bring you back to the land and I will bless you because of my name. Regardless of how much Israel obeys or disobeys or believes God, God promised Abraham, I will bring you to this land and I will make you a great nation. Uh, he says, I will do these things. But no matter how much Israel gets punished, God will always bring them back to that particular land because he promised he would all the way back in Genesis. And by the way, over in the book of Romans in the New Testament, our salvation is built on no more nor less than the Abrahamic covenant. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 points out that Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteous. That's what our faith is built on is the Abrahamic covenant. So we see in Scripture, and we bring it out quite often, that there are patterns in Scripture that occur so what you just described, Israel had disobeyed. He allowed them to be taken off into captivity as punishment, but yet he brings them back because of the promise that he made to Abraham, the land promise. Later on, when we get to the New Testament, they reject Jesus as their Messiah. And what happens when Jesus even calls for it, he, or he says it's going to happen, their temple is destroyed in 70 A.D., and the Romans come in, destroy it. Not one stone st stood upon the other. And the Romans came in, took out the temple, and also destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish people out. That was punishment for them to rejecting their Messiah. But even at the time that we're talking now, Israel is back in their land again. I think it would be safe to say that God has caused situations to occur to bring them back in their land once again because it's a promise that he gave to Abraham. Over the millennia, there's been several major world leaders that have made it their life's mission to try to destroy the Jewish nation. They've always failed. One of the reasons they've always failed is because the people of Israel really are God's chosen people. Now, they're not saved in a New Testament sense unless they have faith in Jesus Christ. But God made a unilateral promise to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac. He repeated it to Jacob. And this book of Nehemiah is one of the evidences that God, even after the disobedience and after God's wrath had been poured out upon them, God brings them back to the land. And Nehemiah even gives them credit. God gives God credit for this. And still today, if the people of Israel are to be run out of the land, with one of these evil leaders trying to destroy them, they will not be able to destroy them completely because of God promised unilaterally, I will bless you. And secondly, they will always be brought back to the land because God promised them, I will bring you there and it's your land forever. 
everlasting covenant, he says. So with this, by the time we get to Nehemiah, we have the people moving back into the land and there's these moving of nations. Some support for this comes from secular history and several things that we find in our Bibles are proven outside of the Bible with secular history, namely like King Manasseh, of Israel, which was one of the last kings before the captivity. He is mentioned specifically in some of the archaeological items that have been discovered. Israel's being taken captive. That's another one that's shown in, in secular history, how Cyrus conquered Babylon and then returned the people to their original state. When Babylon came in, they believed in displacing these people groups, hence they were t the people of Israel and other nations were taken away from their lands. Well, that was the Babylonians. When the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and absorbs Babylon, King Cyrus, he had a different view, send all these people back. So it just so happens that these kings had these viewpoints that aligned with God's purposes. What a coincidence. Yes. Well, it's not a coincidence at all. It's God moving the pieces around on the chessboard. So some of the documents that you might want, if you're of a mind to do the research, in the British Museum, there's a couple of objects that you might want to look up that mention some of these things, one of which is called the S.R. Haddon Cylinder, and there's another one called the Cyrus Cylinder. Those are in the British Museum, and they document some of these movements of the people groups of Israel and what happened that's corroborated here in Nehemiah and in Ezra. With that, we have some more in Nehemiah 1.1. Talks about, it says here, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It happened in the months of the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. Now that's Nehemiah 1.1. That also gives us historical corroboration simply because Susa, the capital, or some of the translations translated Shushan, was indeed the winter capital of the Medo-Persian kings. In the winter, they would pick up the royal court and go to a place that was, the weather was better, namely Susa or Shushan. And the Hebrew month of Kislev falls in late November and into December. So the fact that it says in Nehemiah 1.1 that in the winter month of Kislev, he was in Susa with the king that aligns with this secular history. So throughout the Bible, we have these incidental details that provide a spookily accurate historical record of what happens to the people of Israel and the nation. So we say all that just to say this, we can trust our Bibles. This is history book. It's not some sort of just made up religious myth. It falls into accurate history. Once again, these incidental details align up with the Bible. Next, if we look at this man, Nehemiah, what are we going to know about this man, Nehemiah, and his character and what he's like? What are we going to find, Steve, as we look at this man, Nehemiah? Well, we're going to see him akin to other figures like Daniel, that he has a burden for his homeland and he has a burden for Jerusalem. And when he goes to God, Yahweh, in order to petition for them to go back, he acknowledges 
that the Israel, the nation of Israel has sinned and has gone away from God. And in his prayer to God, he acknowledges all of that. We see that with Daniel. We see that with other prophets when they go to God. We saw it with Moses whenever he went and worked with God. We, we see his heart that, number one, he has a burden for his own people and for his homeland, but he also has a burden to be a worshiper of God and that he is a worshiper of God and he treats God with honor and respect and acknowledges that he is the creator of the world and that God can bring about things to take the people and allow them to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We're going to see this man, Nehemiah, is an incredible man, and he, he accomplishes an incredible task. What we see here, when I look at the man, Nehemiah, I see a man that has a singular purpose. Rebuild the walls and the gates. That's his singular purpose. And then after that, he moves on to helping the people get organized. But he is a man with a mission. He has a singular purpose, and he would not be distracted. There's several times in here where the enemy tries to distract him, and he would not be distracted. He has a singular focus on accomplishing this mission. He motivated a group of discouraged Israelites to accomplish great things. And as that, he's one of the great leaders of history in the sense that he accomplished an incredible task. What he started with was a group of very demoralized and disorganized people that had critics among them. And he managed to motivate them and organize them and accomplished an incredible feat. Lastly, he organized these people and got them back to following God, which is really the most important thing. Towards the end of the book of Nehemiah, these people were still wandering and not following the Mosaic law. And he made absolutely sure that they were going to, to follow the law because that's what they were supposed to do. We've already talked about the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah because they, they really occur at a very close time period. In the Hebrew Bible, they're one book. A lot of scholars believe that they were written by the same person or compiled by the same person. If we look at Nehemiah, a lot of it is written in first person. It talks about I did this and here's what I did. We also have, I think it's nine prayers that he had. So we have the private prayers of this man that were written in first person. Amazing look into an amazing man. From a big picture, this is towards the end of the Babylonian captivity. From the Old Testament chronology, it's way down towards the end of the chronology of the Old Testament, not long before the silent period where there were no prophets. But that's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah. Ezra says three times that God gave the law to Moses. And then Nehemiah says seven times that God gave the law to Moses. The reason I bring that up is because there's some more liberal scholars that would hold that the book of Moses, the law, the Pentateuch, and much of the Old Testament was written by Ezra right at this time period of when Ezra and Nehemiah were written. Liberal scholarship has held for a couple of hundred years now that the law that Moses was an invention and that the whole story of the Exodus was a religious myth. And it was put together probably from, at least so they say, from some old, old religious stories and compiled into a religious story by Ezra. 
Well, the reason I bring this up here is because if we just look at Ezra and Nehemiah, it kind of blasts that story out of the water simply because they say God spoke to Moses. And if Moses was an invention, it would be awfully odd to have them talking about Moses as a historical figure and talking about the people as if you should have been all this time following these laws. The theory that Ezra or at the time of the kings, the priests put together the law of Moses just falls apart upon close inspection. And Glenn, as you point out many times, you can come up with these ideas and uh, express these ideas and even defend these ideas until you have to deal with the text. This would be one of those situations, right? Right. If you go to the text, the text says that the law was given to Moses. There is no hint whatsoever in these books that the Old Testament was created or edited together during the Babylonian captivity. It's just a, a theory in space that doesn't have grounding in the scriptures. So to summarize today this introduction, where we are, we have this book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah achieves great things because he has a singular focus. It has great application for leadership in the church today. If you're a church leader, you need to be with us in this study. God does not forget his people. That's another lesson is that, the, again, they've been under God's punishment for 70 years. He hasn't forgotten them, hasn't forgotten them. Leaders must not get distracted from primary focus. They must hold the people under them accountable. That's another thing we're going to learn here in, in Nehemiah. And when God gives vision and purpose to a group of people, then get out of their way because great things are going to happen. That's the introduction to the book of Nehemiah, and it's going to be a great study. I'm looking forward to going through this study. It's another Old Testament book that I think uh, we've mentioned before that the Old Testament is overlooked and, and it's not studied that much. But Nehemiah has a lot to offer and I'm looking forward to go through it. And if you'll be with us next time, we're going to be reasoning through the book of Nehemiah. And we trust that as we go through that you'll be with us. Thank you so much for watching and listening. May God bless you.